So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money, episode 1327, Patrick McGinnis, author of The 10% Entrepreneur and Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. I'm so pleased to bring on our guest today. His name is Patrick McGinnis. And in fact, he was on the show five years ago talking about his first book, The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job, which I think still today is very, very applicable considering this great resignation, great reshuffling that is going on now. I have friends who want to learn how to bridge a nine to five with a meaningful side hustle that might even turn into a real business one day. So we talk about that, but we also talk about one of my favorite topics, which is FOMO, the fear of missing out. It's a topic that is in my upcoming book on fear. Patrick, get this, coined the term FOMO. He is the source of this acronym that we use so casually today. He came up with it while a business student at Harvard. Can't even believe it didn't come up when we spoke five years ago. I feel like he was burying the lead here, but he is the father of the fear of missing out. And he's got a book called The Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice that came out just recently. We talk about FOMO as it applies to our social lives, but also our careers, our finances. Why do we experience it? How can we overcome it? A little bit more about Patrick. He is a venture capitalist, a speaker, and he also hosts a hit podcast called FOMO Sapiens. He graduated from Georgetown and Harvard Business School. He is fluent in Spanish, Portuguese, and French. A little fun fact there for you. Here's Patrick McGinnis. Patrick McGinnis, welcome to So Money. I am making this happen and I'm really proud of myself, can I say? You know what? I'm just so happy to be here. You may not know the backstory to all of this, uh, but my listeners and I, we have been anticipating your arrival to So Money. I told them that we were going to meet, that we met at an event. Interestingly enough, that particular event, which was the book party for Terry Trispicio's book, Unfollow Your Passion, love Terry. Obviously I was going to be there, but I was experiencing a little bit of FOMO in that if I didn't go to this event, I would not meet the man who coined the term FOMO. Let's start there, Patrick. How did you figure this out? Okay. You were an MBA at Harvard. How did this become a curiosity for you so much that you wrote about it and even gave it a name? You named this fear, which I think is so important. We need to name our fears. We do. And listen, I made up words my whole life. So I, I always like wordplay. I, I invented a ton of words and I have a list of words that I've invented or just words that I like. So listen, that, that kind of is good context. But what happened was I was in New York City on September 11, 2001. I remember thinking that the world would never be the same and that you had to live every minute like it was your last. And then I had actually taken the GMAT the day before the attack. And when I got my score, 
I had never even really thought about applying to Harvard, but I did well on the test. So I was like, I'm going to apply to Harvard and I ended up getting in. And when I got there, it was this amazing environment with so much opportunity. And by the way, this is pre-social media. Well, you know, there was no, no, no Facebook or anything. And I just realized that there were so many great things to do and I wanted to do them all, but I started to feel anxiety all the time. And I realized that it wasn't just me, that this was the culture of the school. So I started calling that fear of missing out, shortened it to FOMO and ended up writing an article in our school newspaper all about it that came out in 2004 called Social Theory at HBS McGinnis to Foes about FOMO and another term called FOBO. And right around that time, Mark Zuckerberg was about a mile from me inventing Facebook and wow. the combination wow. of that, it just went global. Wow. So we're going to include the link to that article in our show notes so everybody can read it. I read it. Um, so FOMO and then FOBO, which is the fear of better options. You wrote about this, obviously, while at Harvard, uh, a place where everyone is ambitious, everybody wants to optimize, right? It's all about optimization, especially the business school students. But this is not exclusive to people who just want to like make the most of things. Tell us what you found uh, since writing that and probably going even deeper. And now you have a podcast called FOMO Sapiens. So you really are studying this continuously. FOMO is kind of like a bug. It's like the fear bug. It catches you. Who's, ca who's catching this? Because we think that it's because of all of us just spending too much time on Instagram, but this is not exclusive to a social media phenomenon. Absolutely. And listen, the thing is that when I wrote the article, it was actually satirical. It was in the humor section of the paper. And because I thought this is ridiculous. And frankly, I'm going to go back to the normal world where people don't have such high class problems and I'll move on with my life. And the world caught up. The reality is FOMO is part of the human experience. It goes back to the earliest humans because people always were you know, they're, they're watching other people. They have reference anxiety because they want to make sure that they had the best, you know, sort of sources of food and shelter and all that sort of stuff. So it has always been part of our DNA. But in the early days, you know, when it was really about sort of physical safety. And, and, and nowadays it's become about emotional safety because the drivers of FOMO are, are, it's really number one. It is sort of that it's in our DNA to compare ourselves with others. So there's a reference anxiety element. And then at the same time, we now live in a complex world where we're overwhelmed with choice and we are overwhelmed with information. And so, you know, if you go to a place like I was in Turkmenistan where there's very little internet and there's no social media, people just don't, it's a low information society. They don't have enough data to start feeling insecure. But if you go someplace where we're constantly bombarded with opportunities to compare ourselves to what other people are doing and then evaluate how we're doing in comparison, especially when we are you know, oftentimes adding a bunch of details that don't even exist, right? We are idealizing things. That's where the FOMO happens. So it's, it's not about social media, although social media is an accelerant, but it's really about our internal competitive drive and the fact that oftentimes we create a narrative in our head that something's way better than it actually is is in reality. Yeah. It's fake. It's a fake, it's a fake fear kind of. It also speaks to herd mentality, right? Going back way back to uh, the Paleolithic era mm -hmm. where if you didn't actually do the thing that everybody else was doing, that was a threat to your survival. Absolutely. That has endured. That has endured. 
That's right. And, and in fact, FOMO really has two elements. One is aspirational. We want something, the bright, shiny object. The second is the herd, exactly what you said. The notion that everybody's running in one direction. I don't want to stay outside of there because back in the old days, back in like the Paleolithic times, if you weren't in the herd, like the predator could easily pick you off. So you needed to stick with the group. I think I have a reverse FOMO, Patrick, though. Like I want to, I have a fear of being forced to do the thing that I don't want to do. And I think that the last two years we've learned hopefully by now how to be comfortable at home and outside is like not that interesting anymore. I mean, I miss my friends. I miss going to restaurants. I obviously want to experience people in real life, but I I feel like the last two years has really made me, it's, it's created a filter for me. Like I, I'm becoming more selective about how I spend my time as part of an overall reflection that I've been doing on life and what brings value into my life. Do you see this shift happening as well, where maybe we're moving away from FOMO a little bit because we've learned how to be with by ourselves a little bit better. Like we've developed more muscle strength being independent. So I have felt those feelings, right? I remember when the lockdown happened and I read on Twitter, FOMO is dead. And I was sort of like, well, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily <laughs> believe it. And I was like, that's bad. That doesn't help my brand. Bad for my okay. business, right? Totally, right? <laughs> However, then last summer when we were sort of having that lull, I mean, people were living at 500 miles per hour. And so, and then I think it's going to settle into a place that, we shall, we, you know, I will see what's going to happen, but it's generally my sense that maybe on the social side, people have kind of recalibrated their lives in such a way that they have a better sense of what really matters to them. But remember, FOMO isn't just about parties. FOMO is about jobs. FOMO is about having a baby. FOMO is about taking a trip. And I think that like it is in our human nature. And given the fact we live in a high information society, we are going to feel FOMO. And so that's why it's so important to know what it is and then Mm. have the tools to fight it. Well, speaking of FOMO and careers, a lot of people in the last year and well, really two years, but accelerated last year, many people leaving the corporate world for various reasons, but burnout was a top reason. Um, And also I think that going back to that idea of like reevaluating what's important to me, am I really in the right job? And so a lot of people are at this, um, they call it now the great uh, reshuffling, like Mm -hmm. when they're at transition points. And so you have a book called The 10% Entrepreneur that provides maybe a pathway to doing two things at once, which is maintaining your career, your foot in the corporate landscape, but also starting something new. Because I think too often we think it's got to be either or. And this isn't like a nice side hustle you're talking about. You're not like dog walking and working at a nine to five. You actually, it's about enterprising something on the side. Tell us about the 10% entrepreneur and what, first of all, what inspired you to take on this topic in this particular way? Yeah. So this is actually, I mean, I've been working on this topic now for a number of years because I did this myself. So my career blew up in 2008. And I basically had to go out and reinvent myself. And what I realized was I was- How not, did it blow up? I was working at AIG during the financial crisis. Oh, okay. Literally blew up. Okay, Literally, gotcha. my stock fell 97%. <laughs> that you were, you were being literal there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was not a good no. time for me. And I just was not diversified. And I thought to myself, okay, so I have spent all this time and energy 
um, building a career that just blew up and I have nothing to show for it. And so that was the moment I decided, you know, I'm going to build a portfolio of activities, but I'm not going to be a gig worker because a gig worker doesn't own any, you know, it's sort of like you just, you're simply making money the minute you stop, then there's no more money. I want to be an owner. I want equity ownership. And so I started, I took an approach. I started some things. I started investing in other people's opportunities. I started investing my time in exchange for ownership and things. And that has since uh, in the last 10 years turned into a portfolio of over 30 different I guess 10% as it were that have, you know, a number of them have become unicorns and a number of them have failed and I've learned so much. And it's really become an exciting part of my life that has created a lot of opportunity and and it's been surprisingly manageable at the same time. And then do you have a full-time job or did you have a full-time job while you were doing all this too? Tactically speaking, how do you manage your time well? I'm going to work out of order here because I think firstly, mm-hmm. we should talk about how to even find these like mm-hmm. side 10% entrepreneurial ventures. But for you personally, how did you manage your time? So when I started this, I was doing consulting full-time. I had left my mm-hmm. job at AIG or my job left me essentially. And so I was doing all this consulting, which was, I was happy. And But I thought to myself, okay, I'm constantly having to go out and find more work and I can never say no because I don't have any predictability. You know, that's what happens when you're a freelancer. And so I started to think, how can I, you know, I'm, I'm generating income right now. I am not generating long-term wealth. And so that's where it started. And so I just allocated 10% of my time and money to finding opportunities and investing in different things. Now, as time has gone on, my 10% has grown. And now my 10% is like 35%. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when writing the book and interviewing all these 10% entrepreneurs, as I've done over the years, what I found was that there are many people who use this as a pathway to going into a full-time entrepreneurial venture and they de-risk it by doing the 10%. There are lots of other people that are very happy at their day job. They're happy to continue to get that paycheck and they like that stability, but they recognize that they're bored or they want more upside or, you know, they have the FOMO that everybody is, you know, investing and making money and they're not. And so they use this as a way to sort of, you know, be a part-time entrepreneur. What I like about it is that you get to continue a stream of income, mm-hmm. which we know so often what what creates um, scarcity as an entrepreneur or making like knee jerk reactions, knee jerk moves be- is because you don't have financial runway. You don't have you're afraid you're going to run out of money. Where do you begin as somebody who wants to take on this approach to diversifying their career and income streams like okay i work nine to five or ten or really i mean who works nine to five it's really like all the time Mm -hmm. but you have that stable full-time job let's say um in business in some sort of sales or marketing or you know business is so broad i think that'll apply to a lot of people uh what's a feasible 10 percent gig or not gig let's call it what do you call it? Project? Entrepreneur? Yeah, I call venture. it 10%. So yeah, it could be a venture, a project. You know, it, so what's great about this is it's it's a pretty flexible uh, sort of template that you can follow. And and the reality is there's there's five types of 10% entrepreneurs. There's the investor, the angel investor, which you invest your money and other people's projects. There's the advisor, you invest your time. There's the founder, you start something. Then there's aficionado and the 110% entrepreneur, which are like investing in passion projects, investing in, you know, you're already a full-time entrepreneur and you're doing sidekicks. So those are the five types. Let's think about somebody who has a full-time job, you know, working in you know, sales or marketing. The first thing to do is think about, you know, what am I good at? And 
and what do I want to do? Because the intersection of those two things is where you're going to find your opportunities because that's your expertise. But also it's sort of like you, if you like doing it, you're going to make time. So there's a whole process to figure those out, but that that's kind of step one. Step two is determining your resources that you can invest. And that's really time, money, and intellectual capital, right? So how much time do you have? How much money do you have? And then, you know, where is your sort of, you know, what is the sort of value that you can add? And that is going to depend for different people. It'll be different. Some people are going to say, listen, I don't have money to invest. You're not going to be an angel investor or listen, I don't have any time. You know, I'm very limited. Well, then you're not gonna be a founder, but there's always a way to do it. If you have very limited time, but you have some capital being an investor in something can be really good. You know, your friend's startup. If you have tons of time, but not a lot of capital, investing your expertise, like say, okay, you know what? I'm going to help you uh, figure out your marketing plan. I'm going to advise you if you give me a half a percentage of your company, you know, stuff like, and this is very common in, in the sort of tech world. And then finally, you got to go out and you got to find those opportunities. And so that's kind of the way you do it. And we can get into those in more detail, but it's a very structured process that like, I, you know, I sort of came up with it and wrote about it, but I, I did this by studying hundreds of people who do this. This is quite common. It's just that we didn't have a word for it before. Kind of like FOMO. You talk about a, a one entrepreneur in your book who started a fashion company. Mm -hmm. It turned into a fashion company. How did she start? And what if it gets too big for like, you weren't wanting it to get so big. Like the whole yeah. point was to keep it at 10%. Now it's 80%. Good problem to have or what? Yeah. So it's interesting. The story in the book is about uh, a woman who had a baby. So she worked in fashion, sort of like soft lines, I think they call it, like, you know, sort of like get, she would travel around the world finding fabrics so that they could make uh, bedspreads for this big company and, and they would sell them at Macy's and things like that. Then she had a baby and her mom started sending baby clothes over from India. And so she said, oh, these are so cute. And so she, given her expertise in the fashion world and the fact she had a baby and her passion for the baby clothes she, and the fact that people loved all the clothes she had, she started taking the clothes that her mom had sent and coming up with her own fabric ideas and having these prototypes made and people love them. And so she started just going to um, trade shows and trying to sell and she'd sell out. So she decided to start a company called Masala Baby out of her house in Brooklyn. She put up a website and then one of her designs was worn by Matthew McConaughey's baby. So then their website crashed and then oh. it took off and she ended up going half and half. She actually ended up telling her company, listen, this is growing. I, I don't want to leave. I like what I do with you, but I also want to be able to work on my company. And they agreed to let her go 50-50. And so number one is it is important to remember things can grow, by the way. And you know, if, if it gets really big and stressful, you need to either hire somebody or figure out an alternative approach to what you're doing at your day job. But what's great about this for, for Depali in this story was that she ended up building a business that she went to full time after like seven years. And so it was an mm -hmm. awesome way to be an entrepreneur without like quitting your job and living out of your savings to get there. So it sounds a lot like you should start with what's in your wheelhouse, whether that's your existing network, whether that's already the industry that you're working in. I'm sure you have to also be careful, right? Because you don't want to create disruption at your nine to five, because I do know people that have gotten into trouble. A, a woman who, for example, worked in a, at a beverage company in their social, me social media department, she started a Instagram feed that was related to food. Mm -hmm was not competitive. They were a beverage company. Hers was like baked goods that were gluten-free and they didn't like it. And she, they gave her an ultimatum. And ultimately she chose to go and 
full full speed ahead with her Instagram and now she's got a book and she's got a whole brand. Mm-hmm. So good for her. I think this is what keeps people a little nervous about pursuing something on the side that is a little closely aligned with what you're already doing at your nine to five. So how do you reconcile that? First of all, you're absolutely right. And, and one of the things I talk about in the book, every person in the book has their name. And they're not hiding because this is not illicit, right? And I think I had a guy I interviewed actually who had a separate laptop that he kept in his car and that he would go out and work on his sort of side project during the day on work hours. And I couldn't use it because I was like, this is not what I'm recommending people do. I want people to be honest and I want them to respect policy. So number one, you got to know the policy of your company. And if any disclosure is required, you have to make that disclosure. Number two, you would you should never do anything competitive or use any of the resources of your company in order to advance your business. Don't be using the UPS, you know, code. Don't be using the photocopier, all that stuff. And number three is I think it, you know, wear appropriate. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to like wear the t-shirt of your company when you go to the office, but being forthright about it and telling people about it is really important. And what's happening now, and this is the cool part that I've been, you know, hoping to happen for and, and advocating for is that companies now recognize that supporting their employees and, and and having policies that are friendly to this, it's actually a retention tool because people, mm-hmm. you know, what's crazy is like you have a 10%, you may not love your day job, but you're like, you know what? I appreciate my day job because it pays the bills and I can work on this thing that I'm super excited about. And so as a result, actually, you know, I think this is the future because younger people entering the workforce, they're not one dimensional. They don't see themselves as just like, look at any millennials Instagram. They have like a million slashes, right? It's like change maker slash activist slash social media marketer slash model, whatever. I don't know. Just go. I see it all the time. It is the way the world is going and companies need to get on board. That's a really astute point. I think there's so much change happening right now on the corporate landscape, the employer and landscape. Like they really, it's really an employee's market. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's encouraging for those of us who are maybe looking for new places to work. How can you tell if the culture will be inviting to this though? Especially if you're new, especially if you're just starting out, it's not a question you might want to ask the recruiter or is it? You got to look at what the senior management does. So I think that's really helpful. Look at Google, right? Google, I've spoken to Google a bunch of times because they they actually advocate. They brought me in to say, like, we think that our employees should do this. Well, right? they have the, they used to have that 20 percent time mm-hmm. off or whatever they called it. But it was meant for innovation at Google. Like, think of cool things that we can create. And that's how they, you know, I think that's how Gmail came about. <laughs> Absolutely. And then they moved beyond that and said, OK, we also want to encourage you guys to do things outside of work. And why was that? Because Google is no longer startup. It's a huge company. And most of the people who work there don't have entrepreneurial experience. And so actually Google's pretty smart because they encourage people to learn entrepreneurship in their free time so that they can be more effective at the office. And so what I'd encourage people to do is like when you talk to senior people, ask them like, oh, do you do any, any investing outside of work? Or do you have any side hustles or projects that interest you? Because chances are they do because like think about the size of angel investing in the country now i mean angel investing is is a huge phenomenon it's really blown up and so as a result if your boss 
is somebody or their potential boss or leadership of a company are people who understand the value of this and they're not afraid of it because they're, you know, I think it's like the idea like, oh, they might leave or something. Once people get over that fear, they realize actually like, wow, I want to hire people who are interested in actually building things in their free time. That's the kind of employee I want because you know what? These people, they are entrepreneurial minded right. and they're going to be better in my company. Yeah. You want entrepreneurs, people who will bring that entrepreneurial mindset into your company. So true. I want to talk about FOMO Sapiens. I know it's a seasonal podcast, Mm -hmm. but are you currently, what's going on? Who can, what's, (laughs) you've already had so many great guests and really these people, they, they experience FOMO. How is this possible? You know, these, these multifaceted entrepreneurs and billionaires who seem like they are very decisive and uh, know exactly how to make a decision. So FOMO Sapiens, it is seasonal, but actually I'm, I'll hear some breaking news for Anusha, which is that oh actually like we have, we're, we, I don't know. We, I used to do seasons because I was on the Harvard business review network. So that's how they did it. But the reality is we run a weekly show and we haven't, we, you know, we, we haven't stopped for like a year. So we're kind of moving into, we say seasons because they're thematic, like season eight, which is coming up is going to be all about entrepreneurship. And then season nine, we're going to do like a product productivity season. So it's more thematic, but we run a Thursday show every week, which is an interview. And then Monday we do like a 10 minute, which is kind of a how to based on what we're learning in, in the interviews. Right. So that's that in terms of what the show is about. So a FOMO sapiens is somebody who doesn't just follow the old path that everybody takes. They break free from the treadmill to build a life that is unique and exciting. And so that's the type of people we bring on the show. And so we've had like a million entrepreneurs, everybody from the founder of Luke's Lobster to Zola to Tom Shoes. We've had politicians like Andrew Yang. Um, I had Ian Schrager. I'm excited. Uh, We have an upcoming, uh, we have like a lot of business authors, like we have Whitney Johnson coming, but then we have Josh Peck from Drake and Josh, who's going to be coming on. Um, for the, the big Nickelodeon star and he's now on How I Met Your Father. So it's a really wide range of people, but we talk about entrepreneurial decision-making across the spectrum. And that's kind of the, you know, even like a Josh Peck, who is a, an actor, he was one of the first people to go on Vine and one of the first actors to build massive social media presence and monetize it. And so that's what we get into. And, um, you know, it's just a really, I think, you know, I, I, I have listened to your show and I think it's like, at the end of the day, we're trying to give people like, a positive attitude with things they can use. And if we can do that, then, you know, our job is done. Yes. And apologies. I didn't even ask about like the intersection of FOMO and finance because I was so deep into like our conversation about, you know, what is even FOMO? And your book obviously has a lot more on this. You can, your book came out in 2020. Mm -hmm. We'll put the link as well. It's called Fear of Missing Out. (laughs) Practical Decision Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. Speaking of, when it comes to FOMO, we I think there have been separate studies that find that it does lead to overspending. It does lead to misalignment financially. Any parting advice for us so that we can make better choices within our financial lives? I'm sure this has come up with your entrepreneur interviews. Yeah. I mean, this is where we get to talk about crypto and NFTs, don't we? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> listen, here's the thing. So I, um, I was in this documentary film that's going to come out this year called The Meme Economy. And they traced people who uh, were deep into crypto and Dogecoin and all that sort of stuff. And like, listen, I'm not here to tell you that crypto is a scam or bad or whatever. You can make But you are. (laughs) What I'm here to tell you is if you're investing things you don't understand because the herd is running at it, 
you were following the FOMO. And in fact, if you Google FOMO in Bitcoin, you get over a million hits on Google, right? So, wow. so that's like insanity, right? So I, you know, I generally, it comes, and I'm sure you talk about this all the time, but it's like, if your investment thesis is copying somebody or I'm afraid to, to miss out on making money, kind of like why I can't go to a casino because when people are making money and I'm not, it makes me feel bad. So if it's aspiration and if, you know, and if it's heard are driving your decision-making and not fundamentals, you can't do it because listen, people make money all the time on things that are crazy. I just watched a documentary about the beanie baby boom of the nineties on HBO max, which is really interesting. And yeah, people make money, but that's just lucky market timing. The people who are in there and don't know what they're doing, they get burned. And so I, I just really encourage people not to do that. And to be, yeah. and to be diversified, please diversify. Yes, yes. And if I can add, and that was all beautiful. Mm. I, I want everyone to just put that like repeat, repeat, play that on repeat. The other thing too, is that there's this um, false sense of urgency stick with crypto. Like you have to buy it now. This is your chance. If you don't buy it now, it will not be a wealth creating tool for you. Do we not remember when the World Wide Web arrived? And if you bought Amazon five years ago, you're doing pretty well right now. Like you didn't have to get it right before the IPO or right at the IPO. That would have been nice. But it's not to say that the window is closing in on us or that the opportunity window is now or never. And, and, and that, you know, when you hear people feeding you financial advice through that lens of like, you're going to, they'll even say like, you're going to miss out and they will tell you what to be afraid of run the other direction. Because if somebody has to oversell you on something like this, also remember they're invested in this. This is what we always forget. It's like the people that are harping crypto, they have a stake. They yeah. need it to go up. It's Let's, a religion. That's yeah. the thing. People, it's more than an investment product. It is an identity. And I just saw this commercial with Matt Damon that's about trying to get people to invest in crypto, where it's basically like, if you want to be a man, then you have to buy crypto. Like that, when people are oh. using that kind of, I mean, it's it's like, come on, Matt, you like be better. Wow. Right? If, if, if people are using those kinds Stick of Stick to the water charities, Matt. Yeah. I mean, don't do that. So I find that stuff to be extremely lame. And as the world's chief fomologist, I recognize the FOMO and I run the other way. World's chief fomologist. I <laughs> love it. As you know, as everyone knows, I'm writing a book about fear. And I think the, like right now I have it where like FOMO is the first chapter because it is such a, we all recognize that. And it's sort of a very pop culture way to open the book. And then it'll go into other deeper fears like intimacy and loneliness. But FOMO, I mean, who doesn't experience that? And so you're front and center in, uh, in the book. And I'll be sure to send you a lot of copies. When oh, that comes yeah. out next oh, year. Oh, you're going to come on FOMO Sapiens too. I mean, this is, I'm, I think the fear, a book about fear is a real. And how it can be your superpower. It's amazing. I'm Let's excited for it. Let's love it. Yeah. You know, like it's the, it doesn't expect that from us. So then we're telling it who's boss. I'm like, hey, fear, what's up? I, love I like it. your bracelet. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick McGinnis, thank you so much for joining. Um, and we're going to have all the links right here. So if anybody wants to pick up your books, Fear of Missing Out, The 10% Entrepreneur, subscribe to FOMO Sapiens and read your very important Harvard article, which launched everything. Um, we'll have it for them. And, and again, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Thanks so much to Patrick for joining us again. All of the links to his books, his Harvard article that established the idea of FOMO and his podcast, FOMO Sapiens, in our summary, in our podcast summary. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you back here on Wednesday. I hope your day is so money. 